Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Americans are more anxious than they've been in decades, and a big reason for that is inflation. A recent survey by the American Psychological Association revealed that inflation is a leading stressor for 87% of Americans. I know the families all across America are hurting because of inflation. The big question now, when will prices start dropping? Inflation increased 8.5% for the year ending March 2022. That's the single largest advance since December 1981. Supermarket essentials and auto prices tip the scales even higher. Most of us are dealing with sticker shock of basic goods on a daily basis. And businesses aren't immune to the angst either, with companies trying to figure out how to handle smaller margins without passing on too much pain to their customers. The government is trying to slow it all down, with the Federal Reserve increasing interest rates and indicating that they'll continue to do so. But it's an imperfect solution. Rate hikes raise the prospect of recession and spook financial markets. So what do we do with all this angst? How do we function and thrive as inflation runs wild? How do we grow in a time of crisis? If we want to see a transformation, a collective metamorphosis, that makes us more financially resilient, well, we have to start with mental resilience. And that means addressing the economic pain and fears of our neighbors and friends. If we continue to treat financial hardships as taboo, we risk not asking the right questions and not proffering the right solutions. For this moment of collective strife to mean something, we have to make new strides in how we view financial hardship. Even if we start small, step by step. I'm Caroline Modoresi-Turani, and this is American Metamorphosis. I think my great-grandfather said it best. He said, life is on the wire and everything else is just waiting. And for our family, that's very literal. My mom was six months pregnant with me and still walking the wire. So. I've done it longer than my feet have been on earth. I am Nick Walenda and I am a seventh generation funambulist, which is a fancy word for a tightrope walker. How do you spell that? F-U-N-A-M-B-U-L-I-S-T. Nick holds world records in tightrope walking for steepest incline, highest blindfolded walk, highest bicycle crossing and more. He is the so-called king of the high wire. Tell me a little bit about your family's background in this industry, because it's almost like high wire performance is in your DNA. I would say it definitely is in my DNA. So my family history in the circus and walking tightrope dates back to the 1780s in Bohemia. 1928, they came to the United States for Ringling Brothers Barnum & Bailey Circus, opened in Madison Square Gardens to a sold-out crowd. And the rest is sort of history. Our family has been here ever since. And again, seven generations, well over 200 years. How did the concept of risk get talked about in your family? You know, it's funny. Uh, very um, 
nonchalantly because the reality is we know what we do is very calculated risk. I've proven it on national TV and worldwide TV over and over again that, for example, when I was walking over the Grand Canyon on a wire that was two inches in diameter, 1,500 feet up, no safety devices whatsoever, I got hit with a gust of wind twice, 48 miles per hour. But the reality is I trained for 90 mile an hour winds. So I was, I was prepared for that walk. I was prepared for those winds. Talking about the Grand Canyon example, you know, so this is, it's two inches in diameter, you say? For, for that particular walk, generally it's about the size of a nickel, five eighths of an inch. You know, you said, oh, you know, it's a calculated risk because you trained for it in 90 miles an hour winds and these were only like 48 miles an hour. Um, but what is the difference between a calculated risk and you just got lucky? Training, preparation is, is the difference. I could get lucky and not get gusts of wind 48 miles per hour or I could get unlucky and get 90 mile an hour winds. But the reality is all of the work and training that goes into what we do and the preparation, I can confidently take that first step knowing that I will confidently make it to the other side. Now, the reality is, yes, I could lose my life doing what I do. And, and again, I think the explanation and why most people can't comprehend that is because it is life to me. It is what I do, it is who I am. For most of us who aren't skywalkers or daredevils, the Wallenda mentality has some application a little closer to the ground. I've been trained my whole life to adjust. My dad always told me when I was young, champions adjust. No matter what was thrown at me, no matter what situation, champions adjust. Very few people have been on a high wire. Take me up there then, Nick. So step out onto the wire. And what are you doing? How are you breathing? For the most part, when I walk up to any wire, my heart rate slows down rather than speeds up because I've trained my body, I've trained my mind to actually reserve the adrenaline for an emergent situation. I breathe slowly and I sort of get into this, this flow, this zone. What I do is probably 70% on the, on the mental side, preparing mentally for it, and 30% on the physical side. You know, I think one of the challenges that people face in life is they get hit with fear. I turn that into a challenge and it's not a foolishness. It's not a naiveness. I realized that I could fall. I realized I could lose my life on every walk. In terms of pushing the envelope and pushing the boundaries of what's possible, I mean, you say it's a calculated risk. I think some people would say you're actually insane for some of the things you've done, Nick. I don't think you can be innovative without taking a risk. You have to be bold. One of my goals is to walk a mile on a wire. So I want to walk from the ground to the top of the Eiffel Tower. I'm working on a walk in outer space right now. If you want to be even creative, you're putting yourself out there. If you're an artist, you're taking a risk. And I consider what I do as an art, but you have to be willing to put your neck on the line. And, um, and that's often scary. So many people get gripped by fear and they, their, their creative juices just stop flowing because they stop in their tracks. When I feel that sense, it drives me to go further. You're listening to American Metamorphosis podcast partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the branded content studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders. This season, we've been looking at disruption as a force for good. 
a tool to address the many crises we seem to be facing today, from the lack of sustainability in our food and housing systems to rising inflation. Solving each one requires innovative thinking and coordinated action. Responding to these crises will require transforming our perspective and understanding of risk. And in the case of inflation, the risks are all around us. By making it harder just to put food on the table or drive to work, inflation threatens our livelihoods and its ripples extend well beyond temporary price increases. And so it's no surprise that as the rate of inflation ticks up, so does our collective stress. It is a tension that warrants us to examine the connection between our money and our minds and take action to improve that relationship. Financial stress is like no other. It will seep into every other area of your life. So if you don't take care of the the money conversation or the money questions, then we can see someone's emotional or mental health take a turn. I am Stephen M. Hughes, and I'm a financial therapist. What is a financial therapist? So a financial therapist helps people heal their relationship with money. As I do my work, it's so holistic, not just about whether someone can follow a budget or a spending plan, but really how they feel when it comes to their money and their health. If you've experienced some type of financial trauma in the past, then you may have changed your relationship with money. And so I help people unpack some of the psychological and some of the emotional things that they're feeling around money so they can have a better relationship. And when you say financial trauma, can you just give me some examples? Like, what do you mean? It's similar to trauma that you would think about, or I'll give you this example. I was in a car accident years ago, me, my partner, my sister. And now whenever we drive, my partner, if we're getting close to a car, even if she's not driving, you'll see her stomp her foot into the mat. As if she's touching the brake kind of thing, Exactly. As if she's touching the brake. But it's similar to how people experience some type of financial event that is negative and it impacts them on how they think about things, how they feel about money and how they behave with it, similar to how the car accident has changed my partner's behavior when she's in the car as a passenger. And like its other forms, financial trauma can develop over time, inherited through family, culture and lived experience. I'm a first generation Jamaican American and As my parents got to this country, they focused on education, like many immigrants do. But we very, very seldom talked about financial education in my household. And as we grew up, it was eight of us in a three-bedroom house, sometimes 10, depending on who was here from Jamaica. That led me to different money experiences and financial trauma of my own that I had to unpack. But before I unpacked it, I made every money misstep possible. I had seven maxed out credit cards. I had overdraft fees to the point they closed all of my bank accounts. I had repossessions, plural. Um, I got evicted from my apartment. My credit score was a 385 at one point. And, you know, as I made these money missteps, I didn't really know who to talk to or where to turn. And as I learned more about money, I thought that financial literacy was the wave, was the the solution. And so the more that I learned about money, the more my behaviors changed. But as I worked with people one-on-one, I started meeting a lot more people who already knew that they should budget. 
they are they already knew that they should save money or invest for the future, but they couldn't do it consistently. And that's when I turned my lens to financial psychology and behavioral finance to really help people move past just learning about money and taking the actions that they want to take with money. You're also a black man in America. And when you're talking about financial trauma, is it even possible to separate that kind of generational historical trauma? And I say historical because it started in history, not that it's not relevant today, but that historical generational trauma and then traumas that we experience in present day. It's not something that we can separate, but we wouldn't want to. To really acknowledge the experience of Black people and people of color in this country, it would be a disservice if we didn't acknowledge it that the impact of money and financial trauma uh, is going to be greater for some of the people who look like me. I'm curious then, Stephen, when you talk about healing, you know, you're kind of contending with, hey, there are these historical systemic issues that have contributed to your financial trauma. Oh, but also we are in this unprecedented once in every 100 year cycle of financial pain. And also let's add on top of that, the income inequality gap is widening. So then you put those one on top of another. How do you possibly think and talk about healing and moving to hopeful solutions? So one thing that we do is we acknowledge the things that are external forces against us, but we also acknowledge the internal impact those things have had and the things that we can change internally to make an impact on how we behave moving forward. So for people who were in their households and were, you know, saw their families struggling with money and wanted a different lifestyle when they got older, but unintentionally are, are behaving with money the same way they saw their family members behaving with it or experiencing the same financial hardships that their family experienced because they never unpacked these stressors or these experiences that they've had in the past. There is this outsized force beyond most of our control, which is inflation. How does something like inflation then lead to an inhibition of behaviors if you have financial trauma? When people feel the stress of not being able to provide for themselves, that also changes the way they feel about stability. And as we know about the hierarchy of needs, like stability is something that every single one of us is looking for. So inflation, as it increases and makes things increasingly harder to pay for, not just for you and I, but every single person who is across the country, these experiences of not being able to provide for themselves or their families may bring on the financial stress that leads to financial trauma. If you think back to like the recession in 2007 and 2008, a lot of people experienced great financial loss and that financial loss impacted the way that they behaved in other areas of their life. This time around, we may be better equipped to cope with the shock and struggle that accompany economic chaos. Financial therapy hit the mainstream in the wake of the Great Recession, 
and may help individuals find calm in the face of today's crisis. The industry of financial therapy has been around for decades, but we really saw an uptick around that time because people were thinking about how the way that they felt and the way that they thought was connected with how they managed their money. So we see a similar thing now with inflation. And it's not that they would point back to say, oh, that's that dang inflation. Like, that's what's happening. But when we think about all of the things inflation impacts, we don't necessarily go back to the root, which is similar to the work that I do. When people aren't able to stay on track with their money, they don't just say like, oh, there was something that financially impacted me when I was eight years old and I should take care of that. They think, oh, I should be able to do this because everyone else is doing it. And we see that with inflation as well. Like uh, there are people who will talk about how much gas is rising right now, but will they point back to all of the things that got us to this point in regards of inflation? Odds are they won't. I'm someone who's very community minded and, you know, judge me for my Jamaican background, but that is how we were raised. I think about the things that as I'm helping more black entrepreneurs and high income earners get their financial lives together, that's past what they know about money, but more so how they feel and behave with money. I feel like those are the things that we can all focus on, not necessarily to have a billion dollars or to become the richest man or woman in in the country, but more so to be financially comfortable. I even ask a question sometimes with my clients. I'll say, do you want more power? It oftentimes causes a full stop where someone has to think about it because of the experience they've had with someone who has had power that they may not want power, but almost every single one of them say that they want to be comfortable. A lot of people say money doesn't buy happiness, but they also may not be shopping in the right places. So I'll leave it there. Whether or not wealth equals happiness, there's no doubt that it equates to survival in the business world. So while inflationary periods, even dramatic ones like this, are painful to experience, It's important for our mental well-being and strategic outlooks to remember that they are temporary. And that's why some experts are looking at this period as not a time for panic, but for growth and prioritizing sustainable, long-term thinking. Inflation is something that does affect everybody. It's, It's not something anybody can really ignore. My name is Hadi Farag. I'm a partner and associate director with the Boston Consulting Group which basically means I'm a a management consultant and I'm very much focused on anything related to corporate strategy and capital markets. Right now, capital markets are in severe disarray. In early May, the S&P 500 and NASDAQ slumped to 52-week lows, partly in response to interest rate hikes announced by the Federal Reserve. The hikes are designed to slow inflation by slowing the broader economy, a high-wire dance of its own. For Hadi, the first step towards advising businesses on how to navigate this environment is to understand how we got here. Can you zoom out a little bit for us? What are some of the key inflationary factors? How far back can they be traced? It, It effectively all goes back to the last 
decade plus, right? Basically, anytime after 2009, right? We've seen strong economic growth. We've seen very low interest rates, right? Because central banks lowered them right at the height of the Great Recessions in 2008 and 9. They never bothered to really pick them back up. So in a sense, money was cheap. Growth was there. People were, were spending. That's a, a recipe that's not durable for, for very long terms. Now, as the danger of a recession looms, Hardy says that investors view inflation as the biggest threat businesses face. How are businesses looking at the threat of inflation in particular? Are they just at the whim of the latest rates like we all are? They are subject to inflation no matter what, right? That's, that's something they, they just have to acknowledge and, and, and figure out. And not every company is affected the same way. It's not, not a one-size-fits-all there. But I think the other part is that just because inflation makes everything more expensive for you as a, as a company, that doesn't mean passing every price increase or cost increase on one-to-one to your customers is automatically the way to go. And, and that's something where I think some companies are really thoughtful in terms of really trying to understand, so what, what is my position in this game? Let me give you an example. And a, a friend of mine is a small business owner. His business is, is about building picture frames. He, he realized that at least a couple of his suppliers were economically way more challenged than he was. So he, he actually worked with them on not trying to, to push back too hard on, on the, their cost increases, but in a sense, then rather let them pass on what, whatever they had to pass on, agree on, on certain quantities, give them some security and, and safety. And he did similar things with, with his uh, customers. Right? And, and it really changed how now his suppliers and his customer look at him. Right, because all of a sudden he is somebody who is not trying to squeeze them for every every cent or dime, at a time when they are potentially really struggling. In other words, inflation is not just an economic phenomenon, but it's a psychological one too, and that makes Huddy's current job part psychology, part economics, and a lot of careful direction. It sounds almost like having a degree in behavioral psychology is necessary to be innovative and to respond well to a crisis like inflation. In, in, in a way, that's, that's true. What differentiates the, the companies who are going to be winners on that is really understanding what is the world and what is my industry and what are my customers going to look like once this whole inflation thing is going to settle down. From a business perspective, dealing with the pressures of inflation requires an acknowledgement that there is consequence with every step forward or back. There's risk in movement just as much as stillness. The key is not simply to avoid looking down at the metaphorical Grand Canyon, but instead to not freak out when you do. So while it might seem counterintuitive, to Hardy, this moment of great short-term uncertainty presents a chance to think about the long-term differently. Crises are also times of opportunity. If you're having a bad year financially, sometimes those are the right years to make, make the kind of changes, be it bring in new people, be it invest in, in new businesses because you're not trying to micromanage for this year's earnings per share. Do you have to have a North Star in terms of where you want to get to and what you're trying to solve? Do you have to have that sort of 
irrespective of any of the financial wins that might shake you. If you're really backed against the wall, you're, you're not thinking about multiple objectives and trying to think about, do I invest in better relationships with my customers or into a new product? You're really just trying to survive. But I think what we what we see otherwise is companies that have a really clear perspective on where, where do we want to be in five or 10 years? They, they really focus on what is going to advance us most towards our long-term um, objectives. Th- those are the companies that really use the trying times to, to their advantage. An understanding of heightened stakes is what keeps a business alive amid threatening conditions. Just ask tightrope walker Nick Wallender, a businessman in his own right. I think, you know, the way to be successful is to continually think outside of the box. I will tell you that business is my passion as much as walking a wire. I was able to take an industry that was dying and going away and turn it into into a career, a, a great career, to the point where I'm beyond where I ever imagined I could be. Um, but it is all about reinventing and changing and ebbing and flowing. And, and boy, have we had to do that with uh, COVID. We've had to do that with inflation now. And um, we're facing challenges that are almost unprecedented in the business world because there's so many different challenges that we're facing right now. I'm, I'm in the process of trying to reinvent or rejuvenate the circus. The circus dates back hundreds and hundreds of years. And it has been an industry that has struggled. Because so I think it's very easy in business to become very complacent. And complacency equals danger. Brands will go away if they're not always innovative and creative. While walking sky high or eyeing the bottom line, the key is to keep focused on the other side of chaos, on the long haul, and embrace the small steps forward it'll take to get there safely. In that moment, Nick, when you are up on the wire and all of a sudden complacency is slipping in, how do you adjust your mindset? Because that is something you have to do, I should imagine, in sort of like nanoseconds. Generally, I get hit with a gust of wind. Uh, I get hit with inflation. I get hit with COVID. I get hit with challenges of business. To me, in the real world, it's a gust of wind. It's a wobble in the wire. It's instability. It is uh, a loss of focus. Those things generally will wake me up quickly and go, wait, you're, you need to focus on, on what you're doing. But again, continually thinking ahead, what's coming next and how can I be prepared for it? What's that next gust of wind? What's that next uh, bird that's going to fly across in front of me? What's the next bee that's going to sting me on the wire? You've been listening to American Metamorphosis. Join us next week for our season finale as we look down from the high wire act in the sky towards the earth beneath our feet.